Um, we are on number 17, Conversations with Yogananda. Does anybody have any questions or thoughts from anything that we've done before? Okay, we'll just start reading. Number 17, last week we did vows, and we're still on it for a while. We did wedding vows and brahmacharya vows, and, but we have one or two more on this one. One more, actually. In another story, in connection with vows, one of the younger monks pleaded, pleaded with the master to give him the vow of Ramacharya, renunciation. Several others joined him later in the brief ceremony. The master was clearly not happy about it. You must take this vow very seriously, he said. Remember, God is here. He is listening to you. Some of you will fall when you break this vow because you took it here today. All the forces will be upon you. The responsibility is yours, not mine. Don't take this event lightly. Please heed what I say. Wow, okay. The master saw those vows, in other words, as more than a mere affirmation. Spoken before him and administered by him, they had the power either to uplift or to destroy. Destroy not in an eternal sense, to be sure, but in the sense of attracting great suffering to the failed disciple. This is such a chilling one. Excuse me just for a minute. I have to just take off my shoes. I can't stand to do it with my shoes on. Okay. To be sure, but in the sense of attracting great suffering to the failed disciple. One thinks again, however, of that young man. He'd had repeat his vows more than once, knowing that he would break them. That was the one we discussed in um, number 16. Okay. We repeat his vows more than once, knowing that he would break them. Was it in reaffirmation of vows he had already taken earlier? Or was the master trying to hold the disciple to a soul commitment, hoping that it would be reawakened years later? Sister Gyanamata, the master's most advanced woman disciple, once stated in a letter that a master doesn't try to spare his disciple's suffering if it can be a means eventually of helping them toward their ultimate attainment of God. It's a very important paragraph. Strange are God's ways and strange the ways of a God-realized master. In the Tolkien trilogy, it says, never try to understand the actions of a wizard. That's how they put it there. (laughs) Never, however, will God turn his back on the devotee so long as he keeps on trying. As often as you fail, the master used to say, get up and try again. God will never let you down as long as you don't let him down and so long as you make the effort. What he saw in some of those monks, I think, was that they would fail in their intention. He wanted to spare them the suffering that would be consequent on that failure. Let me just, I was just going to look back for a second. Okay. Anyway. Yes, it was number 16. This boy once told me in a somewhat puzzled tone, Master had me repeat my vows of renunciation and discipleship to him. He even did it more than once. The interesting point here is that the master knew the boy was going to break his vows. Obviously, what he wanted was to help this disciple to affirm his spiritual commitment, hoping that the affirmation itself would at least strengthen his future understanding. And here we have 
the master saying to these boys, be careful. Anyway, I think the first thing that this tells us is you cannot make a dogma out of what a master does because you have no idea. I mean, the way um, Swamiji has expressed it, which I think is a really important way to see it, is we're all trying to become... Spiritual truth lies at the center. If you think of all of us being arrayed on the outside rim of a wheel and eternity being in the center and eternal realization being in the center, we're all trying to move from wherever we are closer to the center. So we're all coming to the same point, but we can be coming to it from opposite sides. And so what is where, where the master will look at one disciple and say, this is what you should be doing, he could look at another disciple and say literally exactly the opposite of what he should be doing because it depends on which way you've erred in terms of your relationship to the center. So when we say this is what he wanted, this is what he did, this is what he liked, you're just choosing out one arbitrary moment and it may have nothing to do at all with what you should do or that person should do in this moment. You can't carry that too far because when you get outside of personality and you get outside of personal karma, then there is unity. I mean, everyone practices Kriya Yoga the same. And, um, you know, there's just certain uh, impersonal realities that we're all following. And so when people want to, to change fundamental things, it's always a dangerous idea. A woman asked me just yesterday, Sunday, you know, do, do, you've talked about needing a master. You know, why, do, why can't I just figure it out myself? I said, well, even if you do something so simple as play the guitar or play the piano, when you first pick it up, you'll often think it's easier and better to do it a certain way because you have no idea what the implications of that are. And only when you get down the path a little will you realize that you've got terrible habits that you now have to break. But if somebody who knows where you're going can tell you right from the start, this is how you have to orient yourself. So a lot of times we have to balance this, um, our relationship with the spiritual path between our common sense, our experience, our reliance on our own intuition, and a certain obedience to what do I know in this. But we always have to be careful of dogma. What, you know, when did he say it? Who did he say it to? What was the context? Which is why in this book, Swami himself gives us so much context. Even right here, he tells one story about Master. You know, it's like, what's the truth of it? You sort of want, the dogmatic mind wants to know which one is it. Is a vow sacred and God will curse me if I break it? Or is a vow something I'm just aspiring to, so I say it as many times as I can and hope I don't flub up? And the answer is both. Because it just depends. In this story, you say... The boy, uh, the young man, master always called all the monks boys, my boys, he would say, no matter who they were. Swami would do the same. He would call, he'd call people, he would often say, lad was the word he used. Hello, lad, he would say. <laughs> it was always very dear. But it was perfectly appropriate. We were all children in his eyes. <laughs> we felt like children in his eyes too. Not that he disrespected us, but you just felt like a child next to him. That's all I can say. But... Uh, the master was clearly not happy about it. That's also a very interesting point. The master was clearly not happy about it. The disciple didn't tune in to the fact that he was asserting his own will and not really attuned to what master really wanted for him. That's worth noting. And the other thing was that master allowed himself to be pushed. 
And, you know, once again, you can't even make a dogma of the fact that Master agreed to do it. Because Master may have just shrugged his shoulders and thought, I've tried to help him, but I can't. Think of the story in Autobiography of a Yogi of Sri Yukteswar and the, uh, that young villager named Kumar. We tend to think of Sri Yukteswar as being so, you know, forthright and powerful, and Master made us all a little timid about the possibility of meeting him because the way he described him as being so blunt and so um, un- unsparing of Master's faults and all of those qualities. You, you think of him that way. But then he tells this whole story of this, um, even as Yogananda described it, this um, inexplicable affection for this village lad, lad named Kumar whose charms were lost on everyone but Sri Yukteswar. And how gentle Sri Yukteswar was and how he put up with him in so many ways. And then it says, Kumar decided to go back and visit his village against the gentle hints of Sri Yukteswar that that wasn't a good idea. And then Kumar did go back, spend time with his companions. When he returned, as Master delicately puts it in the book, he had picked up many habits that were unsuitable for ashram life. And he, per- and he persisted in those even after he returned to the ashram. In other words, Sri Yukteswar saw that his spiritual life was at stake. Because after he returned and he was unsuitable, with tears in his eyes, Sri Yukteswar says to Master, you're going to have to ask him to leave. I can't bring myself to do so. So even then, his affection was still so great and he had to leave the ashram. But even in that moment, Sri Yukteswar gently hinted Because, why? Because the disciple was not receptive. So what you actually hear in Sri Yukteswar being so blunt and so strong with with Master, you hear how receptive Master was. That's what he's really saying. Because he was there to be um, healed of delusion. And Sri Yukteswar took that responsibility seriously, but he was matching a Master's own and even though we are not, not in the physical presence where we can argue and insist and get our will with Master in an apparent way, we can still do exactly the same thing. So it's, it's imperative that we work on our receptivity above everything and our attunement, as we talk about it later in these readings with later, in, you know, in a couple of more here. It's, it's that we'll, we'll get guidance according to what we want and we'll hear what we want. So the job is not, what do you want, what do you want? The job is letting go, letting go, letting go of preferences, attachments, fears, biases, just endlessly. We're, we're, we're so deeply identified with so many realities and so fixed in the way we think things have to be done. Earlier on, before we started the recording, we were just talking about subconscious habits because two regular attendees of this class are sitting in different seats tonight. <laughs> Which I find deeply disturbing, but I've now you know, managed to accept it. I figure if they can take it, I can take it, right? I mean, I still come in this church and I always sit in the same seats. I can't help. I mean, not just the one up here, <laughs> which is the one I have to sit in, but others. You know, I just, I, and I try to, when I have to move, it's disconcerting to me. Also, I mean, just creatures of habit. Master said, um, break, you know, try, try to do things differently. Just break your habits on a regular basis. And 
a friend of mine who had an operation and went under full anesthesia, which can scramble your brains up. He, he said a couple of days after he got home from the hospital, he just got dressed and he was combing his hair. and He walked out and then he went back and looked in the mirror. I don't know what exactly he did. He said, but he combed his hair the way he used to comb it in junior high school, which was like 40 years earlier. And just somewhere in that anesthesia, what had been activated was a habit from when he was 13. And he just did it and walked away and then came back and looked in the mirror. You know, what have I done? Because we just ha- we're just programmed this way. So then we were discussing about which sock do you put on first. <laughs> and you always do it the same. All the different ways in which we unconsciously act. Now, even if things so trivial as that, think about thought patterns. You know, that we've, we adopt. There's a lot of things about, because we do psychology, attitudes that, because psychology is so popular, attitudes we develop as a child, worldviews we develop, thoughts we have about how the world works. And then we, we come and we really want Master to guide us. But how much do we want him to guide us? How courageous are we? How willing are we to, to, to let go? It's not just a question of consciously willing. It really has to be deep, 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 deep in your heart. I, I've been, as you all know, I've been reviewing files for the book I'm working on, and I just read something so dear about a, 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 a person who's been extremely loyal and very loved by Swami Kriyananda for many, 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 many years. And Swami just remarked like 45 years ago about this person. He says, his devotion is very pure. That's how he put it. You know, and it was just so touching because of everything else that one might say about anybody. Swami just went in and pulled out the point that mattered. And because of that, everything else was possible. And he, he remarked about another person who was not easy. It was a, a, a person who just had a lot of karmic obstacles to overcome. But Swami remarked about that soul, no one tries harder than that one does. And of course, they try harder because they have more to overcome. But he says, as a consequence, I really want to help them. And you see, these are the things that matter. We're so ourselves, we're so uh, small-minded, is actually the only word I can think of. And we ourselves are so self-critical, so uh, self-defined by trivial aspects of our nature, and so judgmental of everyone that we, we, we literally can't imagine how God loves us. And, and we just don't have the, 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 the God's eye view of the world or each other or ourselves. And part of what makes us capable of being receptive is to, to see ourselves as God sees us, just as simple as that. I, I had a person talk to me, and um, she said to me, basically, she did not have faith in God's love for her. I had to stop and think about it because I do. But I realize it's because I knew Swami Kriyananda. And because after, from all those years, no matter what I did, he was always my friend. And it, it gave me an example. And from that example, you know, you can extrapolate. You know, and, and not all of us, you know, had the opportunity to have it pounded into us as many times as I did, messing up as often as I did. But all of us have some place in our life, or I pray to God we have some place in our lives, 
where we feel that acceptance. You have to realize if it's possible anywhere, it's possible everywhere. And wherever, wherever you find it, even if only all by yourself in the forest, if there's any place where you, you can come to peace, or in your meditation for even a split second where you can come to peace, you have to realize that's, that's God breaking through and speaking to you. And, and that is the reality. That's the only reality. And that's where we have to stand when we're trying to attune ourselves. Because standing anywhere else, it's not the master who has a problem, it's we do. We just put on a filter of yes, but. And so what we get is very equivocal answers. It was clear, master was not happy about it. I just love that. Who was clear to whom? You know, it wasn't clear to the people doing it because they were so keen. This, this boy had probably felt he triumphed because he'd persuaded Master to do it. But then he says, you must take this very seriously. God is listening to you. Some of you will fall when you break this vow because you took it here today, meaning in front of me, meaning the Master. All the forces will be upon you. Good God. The responsibility is yours, not mine. Remember last week I mentioned, I asked, we asked Swami once, if we marry a couple and they get divorced, are we, are we karmically responsible? He said, a little bit. <laughs> we took heart from the fact that the marriages that he performed, as many of them failed as they failed for the rest of us. It was just one of those things. The responsibility is yours, not mine, he says. Don't take this event lightly. Please heed what I say. He must have also, I'm just guessing, but he must have seen a certain frivolity in the eyes of the men who were taking it. Or maybe he really knew that their motives were perhaps pride. Sometimes we, people on the spiritual path, what is the, they're, they're trying to hide from something. They're trying to avoid the hard work of certain kinds of self-confrontation and self-development. And so they're really, really eager to surrender everything to God especially the stuff, as I would put it, that they don't yet own. <laughs> they just want to kind of skip the whole project of having to become self-aware and responsible and just hope they can just kind of move around it and go to here. I've, ne- I've never seen it work. What actually happens is God humors us, and he, he, and he helps us. He helps us in the ways that we can be helped until we reach the point where we're ready to face what we were trying to avoid. And then the, there's usually a big karmic bomb goes off, And all of a sudden you get to pick up the pieces. Whoa, what do you know? I thought I could get away with this. I remember a friend of mine, this was just a question of raising children. She, uh, uh, when her her son was a toddler, she didn't find it easy to be the mother of a toddler, so she basically just tried to outlast him because if you wait long enough, they will grow up. But apparently there's some kind of a parallel between the early teen years and the toddler years. So the child became an early teen and everything that hadn't been dealt with, had to be dealt with. And I remember the mother saying to me, I thought I was going to get away with it. <laughs> just like that. <laughs> you know, I really thought it was just going to sneak through, but no. And sometimes that's what happens to us. I thought I was going to get away with it. I thought I was going to put on a front and fool God, but guess what? He noticed. So, so we're saying the opposite. The master saw those vows as more than a mere affirmation spoken before him They had the power either to uplift or to destroy, not in an eternal sense, but in the sense of attacking great suffering to the failed disciple. This is a chilling, horrible reading. Okay. 
because I'm always trying to reassure people. But I guess sometimes we can't always be reassured. We just have to say, you know, some things have consequences. Did you want to? Yeah. That master said, if he goes away now, it will be 200 lifetimes until he gets back to this this point. That's true. I mean, that was, yeah, that's what he said. The devotee, the woman, he said, if she had only stayed in the ashram 24 more hours, that delusion would never have troubled her again. I mean, those are, those are chilling statements, but there you have it. That's what it's like. And so for some reason, Master really wanted those men. And who knows, you know, who knows what kind of consciousness they had. What I'm trying to say is, I don't want anyone to get really paranoid about this, because there was something really specific going on there. That, that really needed to be balanced in some way. Pass it back to Larry. Isn't sincerity a big point here? Um, my yes. thought is if they were going to face these kind of terrible consequences, isn't, isn't it because they came in perhaps with not truly a sincere attitude to well, aspire I, to those vows? That is what one has to... That's what one presumes here, that there was some... Serious flaw, as, as, he, as Swami writes later, in their intention. That their intention for taking them was not clean on some level. And who knows, the pride of it, the uh, whatever it might have been. But I think you're exactly right. That would be exactly how to interpret it. And that is how Swami interpreted it later on in this. My belief for myself is, if I'm sincere and if I do my best, even if I fall short, you know, I just believe... As long as I continue to try, God and Guru is going to support me. It's exactly what Swami says. Never, however, will God turn his back on the devotee as long as he keeps on trying. Uh, as often as you fail, get up and try again. So, and, and, but what goes with all of this is, you know, Sister Gyanamata says, the master doesn't try to spare his disciple suffering if that suffering is going to take him where he needs to go. I remember a friend of mine once d- described you know, what she thought her responsibility in a leadership position at Ananda was, was to um, essentially make people happy. And it was interesting to me because I would never have said that. To me, it was to help people to become free. It just, it just wasn't the way I thought about it. I mean, you could, have, you could argue that her concept of happy, if you thought of it correctly, but it's a question of short-term comfort versus long-term Gain, you know, it's Swami. It's interesting, Swamiji, when he would, uh, when he would counsel us about how to counsel other people, he said, uh, "Be sympathetic, but not too sympathetic." He said, "If you're too sympathetic, you just encourage people to believe that their problems are really big and they have and they have a right to feel bad." It's very interesting. Um, I've exper- I experienced that a little bit in the last few months, you know, in my own personal life. I, I appreciated people's sympathy for tests I was facing, but after a while I found too much sympathy was not helpful. You know, because I'm, you know, I'm moving through this and I'm doing fine, and so I don't really want to see a lot of suffering on your face because all that does is just open it up in me. It's a very fine line. I don't want to make that too harsh, but I never quite understood that before, but I really got it. No, a friend of mine who's, uh, she's, she's also passed away now, but when her husband died, Swami um, said to her first, you know, what a wonderful man he was. 
couple of weeks later, he, he said, you're fine now, aren't you? That's all he ever said. I mean, on one hand, you would think, my word. But on the other hand, wow, it's great to have yogis for friends, isn't it? <laughs> you know, you're fine now, aren't you? That's not how worldly people expect. You know, now, now, trust me, we're not talking denial. We're not talking not facing, not being willing, not being vulnerable. I mean, just that, none of that is what we're talking about. We're talking about once you're, you know what's happening and you're perfectly honest and there you are and you're willing to do it, you're fine, aren't you? Yeah, okay, let's just be fine. Let's just not stand there too long. And so Master just looked at us like this. You know, you have a terrible delusion and what's it going to serve me to support you in it? What's it going to serve you to support you in it? And if you're not going to let go of it without being sliced to ribbons, well, here's the knives and let's start slicing. As Swami often said, no more than a surgeon hesitates to cut out the cancer. The true guru will just cut the cancer out because why would he want you to keep it? And, and we ourselves have to, have to think like that when things get really tough and not define Master's love for us as comfort. It's freedom. And the comfort comes when, when, as Larry is saying, when we are sincere in our desire for freedom. And then you, you find a support, but it's not, it's not a support on the level of, oh, poor baby, poor thing, you know, you have such a right to be miserable. It comes on, you're fine, aren't you? Yes, sir, I guess I am. You know, it's, very, it's very powerful. And um, that's why there's so few people on the spiritual path. <laughs> okay, stranger God's ways. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I, I've mentioned many times when I went through an experience with family where very, very completely non-spiritual, no context, zero, and they went through what would be considered a tragic early death. And everybody just suffered. They had absolutely, they had no place to go. I mean, it was so painful. It was so painful for me was that they had no place to go. They had no place they could go in their consciousness. Everywhere they looked, this was tragic. Just, there was nothing. No philosophy, nothing. No religion. And I was, it was just horrible. And then I realized, oh yeah, this is what makes people get serious. So why am I so upset? Because they're having an experience that's going to cause them to get serious about life instead of just trying to get comfortable all the time. Why is that a bad thing? Oh yeah, see it from the soul's point of view. Yes. What does it mean to not let God down? To not let God down. Where not let God down? Is that is that word in here somewhere? Where is it? Did I thought I you read it. I probably did. Can somebody? Okay. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? It's the last paragraph. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Don't let him down. Means I believe that means as long as you don't lose faith. I mean, to not let God down means to continually believe that God is in my life and I'm doing it because he's in my life. When you let God down, I mean, it's an odd phrase, isn't it? Because who is God to be disappointed exactly? Oh, gosh. I'm just like, I put so much faith in you and now you've just let me down. It just doesn't make any sense. Even in Autobiography of a Yogi, when Yogananda left, the ashram just walked out and didn't come back. Um, Swamiji says he actually was gone for a year and a half. In the autobiography, they make it seem like it was just a matter of days or weeks. 
but he was gone for a year and a half. And then he shows up again. And Sri Yukteswar just took him back without any hesitation. You know, why would I... And Sri Yukteswar said, anger leads, comes from thwarted desire. My only desire for you is your well-being. So now you're back. That's it. There's just, there was no ripple. He just took him back in just like that. So I think to let God down is to, just, is to repudiate the whole spiritual path, to repudiate the guru-disciple relationship. And then God can't help you, is what's really being said. As long as you don't let God down, God won't let you down. As long as you, you are sincere in your intentions. And so this is where he said, I think was that they would fall in their intentions. In other words, they would lose interest even in trying to be brahmacharis or uh, spiritual people. And their intention would be simply to enjoy the world again. Who knows, maybe, maybe some of those men or one of those men just wanted to be important and to have power over other people, and therefore their intentions were not really sincere. They were not really noble, God-centered intentions. Who knows? So it's, it's when we really um, just turn our focus to something entirely other that God can't help us anymore. That, that's what I would call letting him down, because otherwise it doesn't make any, even the slightest sense, does it? That's why Swami tells us so many times, and it's written in here, it really doesn't matter what you do. I guess I said this, this was my sermon on Sunday. It doesn't matter how you behave in the test. You're going to fail a lot of them. The most important thing is what you do after you fail. It's really not even so important how you deal with it if you can't, because we just can't. We're too attached, we're too weak, we're too a thousand things. But once all of that has been revealed, then what do we do? And that's where we don't let God down, where we just are able to just say, well, look at this, Lord. It's going to be a bigger project than I thought. That's usually what happens. When I first started meditating and Master would talk about the portable paradise and all of that, I, I, I don't remember that I actually consciously figured this out, but in my own mind somehow, the number of five years was sort of there. You know, I'm 19, I'm just starting out. Five years from now, you know, I'll have this whole thing done. I mean, I was only 19, and I'd sort of run through a lot of things pretty fast, so I figured I'd get this one together pretty fast, too. You know, just like, it'll be mine. But uh, it wasn't. <laughs> we just, we don't... Uh, now, let me think what the context of that was. Uh, oh, we just, we have to face ourselves really clearly, because we, you know, our, our view is so egoically molded that we just don't even know what would be outside of our ego vision. And so as that ego vision gradually begins to um, release its hold a little bit and we begin to see what infinity really might be like, um, that's, when, that's when we have to really just relax. And I'm doing my best, Lord, and it's not impressive, but there you have it. You're stuck with me. I love that... Um, one that Swami writes in The Path, where Master says about a certain disciple, called him a mouthful of hot molasses, too hot to swallow, but too sticky to spit out. <laughs> and it's, it's actually, it's a darling, uh, very attractive concept, which is that you're just, you're stuck with me. And uh, more than, on more than one occasion, I've had to say that in my heart. I'm sorry that this is what you've got, but this is what you've got. And you're just going to have to deal with it. You know, get over it. <laughs> I mean, and it's, it's okay to talk to God and Guru like that. Because you can see 
when you can say things like that. You can only say that when you're perfectly at ease. That's all. When you're perfectly at ease, you can just be blunt like that. And that's really what God wants from us. It's just to be unafraid. Just to be unafraid of all of it. Um, Tom wants the microphone. What you what you just said about um, you know, just the last thing you said there. What comes after that? After being perfectly, I can't go on forever. Being perfectly being, at ease. No, yeah, yeah, perfectly at ease. Lord, this is this is who I am. This is what we have to work with. Basically, I'm I'm not there yet. I'm not. I can't. I, but that can't be the. No, but it's it's a lot farther along than you realize. Because to be perfectly at ease is to have put down your ego to a massive extent. And then if you're perfectly at ease, God can really work with you because you're, you're not afraid to hear the truth. He's not afraid. He, he therefore will begin to speak the truth to you. And when you hear the truth, you'll just say, oh yeah, sure, that's what I should do. I mean, it's a huge step. It's, it's, not, it's not a passive position you're in. It's a position of deep dedication to the truth and final release of self-protection. I mean, Swamiji would often say, I'm, just, I'm not here to defend the ego. So people would criticize him, and he just would not defend or explain himself. In his book, Sadhu Beware, which is such a humdinger of a textbook for renunciation, he says, people misunderstand you, don't explain. People blame you for things you don't do, don't justify yourself. You know, people accuse you falsely, don't clarify it. Just leave it. And Swamiji would just often do that. Sometimes out of duty to Ananda, he would have to do things. But personally, just never. He just wouldn't. Somebody wants to think ill of him? I mean, just think how, just think how released you are. The rest of us go, you know, just even if you're biting your tongue, there's a piece of you that feels victimized. But he said, why would I defend my ego? He said in another context, Uh, a man, uh, John Ball, who was this author who, um, he was trying to get Swami to talk about his relationship with SRF and what he thought. He was trying to get Swami to analyze himself and his feelings. And Swami wrote back, he said, John, increasingly I'm just not interested in my personality, whether the good or the bad part of it. He said, it just is, is nothing to me. He said, all that I'm concerned about is myself with God. And this personality, whatever it's doing, all aspects of it, it's, it's just not me. So why, why would I care? I mean, you, you see how we, we, what we care about so much about is really so superficial. Just how this personality is formed. I remember Swami said about Bella uh, Potapovskaya, she died in her 40s. And uh, she was a very unusual woman, a Russian woman who'd emigrated to this country. Very, very powerful person. Yeah, Maria's sister, and very powerful person. And Swami just made the interesting comment. He said, almost more than anyone I knew, most of Bella was, was not expressed through her personality. Most of her was on another plane. And he didn't mean by that necessarily that she was really advanced exactly. It's just that she lived, her soul nature, she just brought a little of it with her <laughs> and just didn't care enough to bring the whole thing forward. If, does that make sense? It's an odd comment, but a very interesting one. And a lot, for a lot of us, if we really pay attention, all this interaction and stuff is just a tiny piece of our nature. 
And so to put too much emphasis on it, it's just not that important. Now, don't misuse that, because what happens in this world for most of us is also a very important mirror about what's going on on a deeper level. But still, we become so fascinated by it, just so enamored of it, where Swami says, you're fine, aren't you? You know, get over it. Just go on. It doesn't matter what happens to us in this world. It only matters what we become through it. That has to be applied honestly and judiciously. But if you can, it's very, very powerful. Yes, Sandra? Is, it could pers- perfectly at ease be described as just feeling happy, accepting, um, loving, just... Everything is directional. So that's certainly the, the beginning, but that doesn't mean that you're perfectly free. That just means you're moving in the right yeah, direction. Um, okay, at ease, I meant. Yes, I bet said you could, it's directional. Okay. Yeah, and, well, <clears throat> I kind of use that as a gauge. Sure. You know, I'm always monitoring myself. And so when something happens that causes me not to feel that way, then I know I need to face whatever it is and... And real, usually it's that I'm being judgmental, or right. and so I need to, um, uh, you know, like some maybe somebody will say something I think is stupid, or um, you know, and I think, God, how self-righteous are you? you well, know? see, that's and, why I say it's directional, and, Chandra. Yeah, yeah. And after I I think about it a while, then I start accepting that person. I start thinking about that person and loving that person, and then I feel good again. And then you know, and then something else will happen. And I just keep doing that over and over and over. That's why I said it's directional. Yeah. It It means that you're moving in the right direction, but you can't, it's unrealistic for you to expect to be completely free at this point. I I don't, I don't. I just was wondering, so what I'm doing is... Directional. Directional, okay. Yeah. (laughs) It's the right direction. (laughs) And even when we think we're somewhere. We're not anywhere until we're infinite, so there's always another place to go. So part of being at ease with yourself is realizing, whoa, I thought this was the top of the mountain, but it's just given me the view of the actual mountain. Um, Swami talked about the first time he saw Kanchenjunga, I thought, mountain in India. He was somewhere there where it could be viewed, and it was often shrouded in clouds, and then one day it was finally available, and so he looked, you know, he couldn't see it anywhere because it was there. You know, he just didn't even know where to look and it was so much higher than he thought. That's very true of spiritual path. We just, our imagination will take us to a certain distance and we think that's where it is. But then we, we, Swami talks, and I believe in the path, about sitting with Master and just contemplating, you know, that Master was in front of him, but he was omniscient and he was the divine and what did it mean for him to be one with God and still be there talking? Swami's head was swirling like this. Well, two things happened. Once he was in that situation and Master just walked over and just kind of handed him an apple, he said. Just kind of, this, yes, and I'm also here. And then on another occasion, Master just looked at Swami and said, oh, if you only knew my consciousness. Meaning from where you are, you really just don't. So just accept that it's way beyond you. And eventually it won't be, especially if we just accept it. 
because then the ego will let, let, let down and then God really can change us as long as we're self, self-concerned. Self-forgetfulness is the key. Yeah. One of Swami's um, things that he says about meditation is relax upward. Relax upward, exactly. Yeah, relax upward. I had to write some little trivial magazine article once and when I was trying to do that sort of thing. But you know, everything had to be three, three steps or five steps or two steps or something. So one of them I was, you know, instead of relaxing down, let's relax up. I tried to talk about all the different ways you can relax up, going out in nature. But I didn't go all the way to meditation because it was too trivial. But still, it was directional. And it wasn't, it was good. I shouldn't make fun of it. It was well-spoken. But relaxing upward is a very interesting idea because we tend to think of relaxing downward, which is as less energy as possible, as weak, as tamasic, as unchallenged. And I've often commented that Swamiji simply did not enjoy diminishing his consciousness. So when he would relax, he would always relax upward. I've, I've... I just read him commenting after some huge event at Ananda Village the next morning. He, he did not um, get up as early as he usually did, and he remarked later, he said, I was awake, but I decided I wasn't ready. <laughs> <laughs> so he just stayed in bed for a longer time. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, Saranya has a question back there. I wanted to go back to this um, part about the monks would fail in their intention. And yes, that italicized. And I'm just wondering, intention, you know, I think can very easily be hidden from ourselves. Do you know that we... So what do you think? Well, there's a beautiful phrase that Swamiji has often quoted of Master, which is in answer to that anxiety. I may not even know myself. I may think I'm doing one thing and actually be doing another Uh, Master said to Swami, God reads your heart. In other words, it doesn't really make any difference what we're pretending. The divine knows us because that vibration is within us. So oftentimes, well, it, it came up also specifically, I had done something that I thought was helpful. Ha ha. I tried to help this person understand something and I shouldn't have tried. And that person came to Swamiji and basically completely distorted the interaction, um, but told Swami that I was obviously not only incompetent, but an actual menace to the well-being of the people around me. Well, so Swamiji told me what the person had said and what he said had happened, the man who was complaining about me. I said, well, I said... I resign from the ministry. That was my response. I resign. I'm not going to do this anymore. And uh, I said, of course, none of that happened. And Swami said, I know, I know. And then he gave me some good advice about you have to gauge the receptivity. You can't just gauge the rightness of what you're saying. Um, And then I began to feel quite dismayed. And that was Swami said, you can't always control what happens after you do something because people have free will to respond to you according to their own reality. So the only thing that you're responsible for is your intention. 
And then he said, and God reads your heart. God knows your intention. And not, sometimes your karmic, your consequences, you're just in a position where your karma is terrible and whatever you try just blows up in your face. But if your intentions are good, that's really all that matters. And that's all you're actually responsible for. So what, um, this is how we let God down, is if we really deliberately and deeply veer away. Now, of course, there's many levels, but we don't want to overanalyze it. But, you know, we can be very sincere in our spiritual search and still be very misguided. But underneath it is that sincerity. But when we actually are no longer even seeking God and just seeking worldly enjoyment or power or pleasure or whatever it might be, that's, that's when it gets really dicey. It's, that was why many years ago, and you've heard me tell this story, but in this context it's very important. When Swamiji was passing out compliments and he was overlooking me and I put myself in a position where he had to say something to me and he said, well, Asha, you're very sincere, which plunged me into a state of great unhappiness because I didn't want to be sincere. I wanted to be told I'm liberated or glorious or, you know, I just, I wanted something else. It felt, it wasn't quite as bad as when he said to me, well, you're less confused than you used to be. (laughs) But actually that one worked because all I could say was, yeah, that's right, I am. I mean, I could hear the truth of it. But to just be told I was sincere made me very sad. So a couple of days later, the vibration of disappointment was still around me. You know, what's wrong with you? Well, I said, you know, you told everybody else all these really good things and just told me that I was sincere. I mean, I really felt like I'd gotten the booby prize. But he just looked shocked, really shocked. He said, Asha, sincerity is everything. I mean, he was just like, it wasn't merely that he was reassuring me, he was startled that I didn't understand that. And it, you know, it's really stayed with me because we can be completely misguided, but still profoundly sincere. Because you just may not have the brains or the karma to make good decisions. Or, or as Master said once, we may be compelled by prenatal or postnatal conditioning. <laughs> Would you love that? <laughs> to just do the wrong thing. But that doesn't mean that we're not sincere in our desire to do the right thing. So when we abandon that sincere intention to do the right thing, that's when uh, God can't help us. It's not that he stops loving us. It's not that the guru stops being committed to us, but he can't help us because we're not anywhere on the wavelength where we can be helped. And so that's all we have to keep coming back to. I'm, you know, I'm be that mouthful of, st- of molasses. You know, it just I may be too much of a mess for you to swallow, but I'm not giving up, regardless. There's a story of James Collar, which is in autobiography, uh, The Path. And James Collar had what Swami used to call commotion karma. Just no matter what he did, it was always just chaos. And he just could never do anything right. And Swami tells the story of being at the lake shrine. And there were ducks coming and they were eating the fish. And Master wanted to preserve the fish, so he had a BB gun. And he shot over the head of the ducks to frighten them away. And so James Collar picks up the BB gun and he pulls the trigger randomly, kills two ducks like this. Now that's, that's enough. He manages to kill two ducks, which is not so great. Some neighbor sees that he's hunting the ducks, calls the police. 
The police come, you know, and this is, Swami said, every time James Collar did anything, that's what would happen. And a master had him, he wouldn't let him live in Mount Washington because he was just too chaotic. But master said, he will be liberated in this lifetime. And master said, I don't know how, but divine mother says so. So the difference between personality and who we really are in a soul level, I mean, stories like that are fabulous stories because you really realize. And then there was the story of the man who had uh, uh, MS or uh, some kind of spasticity and couldn't talk, could hardly move. And Master said, God is very pleased with his devotion. And Swamiji responded in his way. He He just couldn't get his mind around this man who seemed to manifest so little and wasn't able to manifest very much, um, Swami said, well, it must be a very simple kind of devotion. And Master, as the book says, smiled sweetly and said, ah, yes, that's what pleases God the most. So we really have to see it from the soul's point of view. And that's what you have to keep coming back to in yourself. Even though I really messed up, I meant well. And, and that's where you have to be enough at ease with yourself to realize sincerity is everything. God reads the heart. I mean, God knows I and many others. You cling to that sometimes. Just like, oh, wow, look at the decisions I made and look at the consequences. Oh, my God. And then you just go back. But I meant well. Misguided, confused, got all caught up. As Swami said once to me, whenever your ego gets involved, Asha, you make terrible decisions. <laughs> and you know, I do. But I don't mean to. I just get confused. I don't, I'm not standing there trying to make it terrible. But sometimes we do really make it terrible. Sincerity is everything. So that's what he was referring to. So let's take a little break. And if you have any more questions on that, we can go right there. All right, where's the microphone? I think... Uh, does anyone have a question? Chandra has one. Does anyone else near the microphone have one? Okay, Chandra. Uh, um, one, of, uh, one of the disciples of Master who, who Sri Yukteswar, let's just use that one, who didn't um, follow his gentle advice to not leave, does that mean he wasn't being sincere because he didn't follow? Or can you know that? You can't know that. Okay. He was not being wise. He was not being wise. Yeah, he could have been very sincere and totally confused. Well, what happens if you, you know, like... like you're not, not going to be able to hammer this down because... Oh, well, I'm, I'm just... So, yeah. so there's no way... Like, if you don't meditate... You're not going to be able to hammer it down, Chandra. It's too subtle. Too yeah. subtle? It's just too subtle. You have to just work with yourself. And, and you just have to work with yourself. I mean, Swamiji made that comment, you know, so-and-so's devotion was very pure... You can't always tell. And you just have to be the best you can be. Because it's not subject to analysis. It's too subtle. Okay. Anyone else with a question or comment? Yes, Larry, over here. Well, just along those same lines, when you said God reads the heart, you know, to me, it's like if your heart is pure, if your heart is really, you know, in that... That's why um, that devotee who had MS or whatever... But he was, he was devoted, you know. He didn't was, have MS. He had, uh, I, I meant cerebral what, palsy. That's what, what I meant Whatever the condition was. Yeah. But, you know, 
it's still it's simple devotion, but it's it's that purity it's from that the heart. Purity of it, right. You know, that's to me that's just such a key thing. And if God and Guru can read the heart, and if our heart is in the right place, right. you know, hopefully our actions will follow from that. And when Swami was talking about the person at Ananda who tried harder than anyone, they behaved worse than most, but Swami knew they were trying harder. So a lot of times, you, it's just why you, you can't hammer it down. You just have to know, and to be insincere is, you know, why don't other people think better of me instead of how can I be a better person? You know, why does, why does everything, why do I always get punished instead of how can I learn from what's happening to me? I mean, those are the, those are the differences between I'm sincerely trying to change myself and everybody's just all against me and nobody's any good and all these people are just lousy and, you know, just go on and on. Swami said something that was very interesting about uh, you can't, let's see, yeah, I mean, this is not entirely related, but now that I've started, I'll, I'll finish it just because it was intriguing. He said, you can often tell the greatness of a guru by looking at the disciples because sometimes the guru is a good actor and you, you don't really know how to tell whether he's acting or not acting. He said, but not all the disciples are good actors. <laughs> so you'll often really see what, whether the teaching is really valid or not by whether or not it's transformed people's lives. I was thinking of this very strongly in the context of Ananda, which, you know, if you have any doubts in my own mind, I mean, I would say this from my own experience, in Master or Swamiji, you know, just the quality of the people who have dedicated their lives to Ananda, and not just one or two, and not just in this one community, but all over the planet, just the, the goodness, it's just, the longer you live with it, the more startling it becomes. Not that all personalities are in order, some of them are not, but the fundamental goodness of heart and the absolute sincerity. You know, I, there was someone in the context of something that was happening who was not behaving well, and it occurred to me after a while, well actually, in the, I'll give a different example, but this person was, um, they used anger to get their way, and eventually the person left, because they, they really, they weren't suited for our life. But they used anger to get their way. And I said to Swami that, you know, if you're willing within Ananda to use anger to get your way, I said, everybody will just back up and let you have your way. I said, it's not that we couldn't match it, but we just don't want to. You know, so if you're going to play that game, you just get to play it. And then you get to bully everyone and make everything happen. But sooner or later, the aberration of that devotee's consciousness just blew the person right out of the community. But it was sort of like, yeah, that, that worked for you, but it didn't really work. We're just not going to go there because it's not who we are. And every once in a while, someone will be in it for power. So confusing to us when somebody is. It takes, you, it takes us a long time to figure out what even their motivation is because it's so far out of our thinking because of the way Swami trained us. Just don't think that way. You know, such people always blow out because you can't, you can't make progress in and on to that way. I mean, you remember one man came and said, so, how do you get ahead in this community? <laughs> well, I don't think you're going to last very long. <laughs> I mean, but, you know, but that's a question that you can ask. 
It's just that at Ananda, it was a comical question because it's just not the way Swami trained us. Yeah. All right. So, any other questions before we go on? So we are now actually on number 18. Um, that, that 17 was a humdinger, so we had to stay there for a long time. To, retu- to return to Madame Galacucci, who came up in the context of her first and second marriage earlier, to return to Ma- Madame Galacucci, the master said, I was talking with her one day, and she said to me with conviction, I have no desires. A little while later, however, she remarked enthusiastically, in heaven I will sing and sing. She was a very famous soprano. Um, I commented with a chuckle, I'm meaning master, commented with a chuckle, didn't you just tell me you have no desires? Um, I love that little interaction because it's so lighthearted. You know, this is, uh, Tom, this is what I mean about um, just being at ease. I mean, Master could just laugh, and he doesn't say it here, but I'm sure Madame Galacucci just laughed at herself in that moment. She didn't think, oh, oh, yes, that's right. Look, I have desires. And she just knew it was a joke and just went on with that. So I remarked about a certain person in our community who's uh, no longer with us who didn't have a sense of humor. And Swamiji said he would just, you know, say some offhanded joking remark, and hours later he would see that person trying, pondering the deeper meaning. And there was no deeper meaning. It was just a joke. I've been reading the folder called Humor today. And I, what, I, I've quoted this before, but I got it exactly right. Swami read a, ridic- a uh, P.G. Woodhouse story that was just so funny. And I said afterwards it was ridiculously entertaining. No, Swami said, it was entertainingly ridiculous. <laughs> and then he said piously, the editor never sleeps. <laughs> it's just, he just was always as, as willing to make a joke about it as anything else. Okay. The sense of being a separate egoic self, Master explained on other occasions, begins with the astral not with the physical body, begins with the astral, not with the physical body. The soul is individualized spirit. It comes into separate existence with the causal body when the universal eye first conceives this particular expression of itself. It's going to take us longer than we have left time to go over that one. The soul then energizes that expression clothing it first in an astral body of light. When, further, it assumes a physical body, its appearance of individuality becomes, though still only an appearance, fixed and permanent. People who think to merge into the infinite by committing suicide only break their outer shell temporarily. They are still locked in the ego, which is implanted in the astral body, and is the source of all their troubles. They must return ego-bound to the material plane, burdened additionally with their karmic sin. Self-murder is a greater sin even than murder, for it springs from a desire to destroy not only another person's right to live, but life itself. One can never succeed in this attempt. Life is God, and God is life. Very powerful. Okay. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah, I think he was... Yes, 
I think the only transition there was when I get to heaven, when I get to the astral world, I will sing and sing. So what he was saying is that her egoic personality will continue. Yeah, and then, but then we got all the way to suicide. Okay. The sense of being a separate egoic self begins on the astral, not on the physical body. I mean, we've talked about this. I've, I know I've talked about this in many other contexts. That it, and that's where, where people get, not, I mean, not even just suicide, uh, but, but, but even natural death. People imagine that there will be some cessation of karma merely because you die, whereas, in fact, there won't be. You'll shift. Um, if we've been good, we shift to a beautiful astral world, and I, I believe it's more pleasant in certain ways. But whatever egoic bondage we have, we still have it, because it just it doesn't... Um, it's, it's, it's more... It's denser and harder to see through on the material plane because the material body, as it's described, um, coarsens our perceptions. So they say when you get into the astral world, the way Swami writes it, all your perceptions are intensified, which is where the concept of heaven and hell both come from, that whatever goodness and good, good heart you have based on your intentions and the purity of your heart, um, you get to have the more because the physical body dulls us. But also whatever darkness and evil you have, <clears throat> also the dulling effect of the physical body is taken away. There was a book, and I don't now remember what the name of it is. I, I don't know if I could ever find it. But it was a book about death and return experiences that were not beautiful. And uh, uh, Swamiji, when he read it, I think he went to East-West one day and was sort of, we were looking at these. He, he, when he read it, he said he was gratified to read those stories because it, it had always seemed to him that the stories people told were awfully one-sided because not everybody who dies on the operating table was a good person. So what happens to all the lousy people? And, you know, the people who have real darkness. And there were two stories in particular um, one of them was about this man who was actually, I think he was a professor, and he was a cynic, and he did his best to instill his students with a cynical, nihilistic attitude toward life. And he mocked religion, and he did his best to take faith away from people, as many intellectuals do these days. It's not an uncommon thing. And he had quite a reputation. I mean, he was uh, considered to be quite the intellectual um, paragon because of all of this that he did. His, his, uh, he basked in a certain amount of worldly respect and glory, and his wife um, basked in the reflected glory. And then he died in one of these ways that people do, and he went to hell. He basically received um, the the agonizing consequences of what his what he had imposed on people by 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 mocking their faith and taking that hope and that expansive understanding of life away from him so he got to experience i mean this is how sometimes they describe it you get to experience the consequences of all your karma so he got it all back on him just the the sense of despair and hopelessness and meaninglessness and uh, you know, sadness, all the things that happen 
when a person loses um, high values, which is so common in our age, people just think of it as normal, but that's what happened. But he was so horrified by that experience, and he also, somehow or another, which I don't remember in detail, saw the error of his ways and actually then had a divine experience that when he came back, he immediately repudiated everything that he had done. His wife divorced him. He lost his position at the university. Everything went away from him because it was all based on this personality that he'd had. But he saw that it was all false and he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Isn't that interesting? The other one was a woman, and all I've, I can't remember completely, but I believe she was very wealthy, very self-centered, and very mean. And she also had a death experience and then just saw herself, really saw what, you know, what a small-minded, shriveled, uh, awful person she was. And she, she, it was a slightly different, but when she came back, she just resolved and began to live in a completely different way. But they got the consequences of what they were doing. You know, she was just, she didn't care about anyone but herself. And she, you know, without, you just, she began to feel what that feels like. Swami said something interesting once. Um, She said it many times. But if you're judgmental of someone or mean towards someone or even have a bad thought without even speaking, you project that thought towards someone or you project your words towards someone, you express anger or some kind of rejection of them, the energy has a certain negative vibration, and it starts with you, and then you send it out. Even if you send it out powerfully, it's still moving away from its source. So by the time it gets wherever it's going, it's going to be less than it was at its source, just by definition. But of course, even then, still, it can really hurt, you know, cause all kinds of disruption. But the greatest disruption, of course, happens at its source. Because the source is the most powerful point of it. So whatever disruption it causes outside of you, it causes much more to you. Isn't that an interesting way to think about it? Isn't that a very powerful incentive for not being like that? And that's, and that's when, you're, when you die and go to the astral world because we're ego-identified with everything that we've done here. Um, all of those experiences, we're, they're still around us because we think that we did them, so we're holding them and we carry them to the astral world. And whatever we have been in our essence, then the grossness of the physical body is stripped away and the, the pure vibration of it is stronger with us. And that's why, well, now, that's why sincerity is everything. (laughs) And that's why it's your intention that matters, not really your success or failures. That's why it doesn't make any difference what happens in this world. The only thing that matters is what we become through it. So even if we've been very, very evil in this world, if what we've become through it is, is truly repentant and purified, that's, that's what's left because all the physical reality of it is just gone but the pure vibration is what we take and that's what we experience. That's why people describe it in such extreme terms. It's either heaven or it's hell is because it is just what it is. There's nothing to interfere. And so it's very, very beautiful if you've been even spiritual at all 
it's a beautiful world because we have refined consciousness and so we get to experience that refinement even more. That's why Master said, you know, some desires can be better fulfilled in the astral world. Beautiful music, beautiful sights. Swami uh, Kriyananda said to, uh, many of you remember Linda Gerber, she was a woman who was part of our church for many years and then she got cancer and she died. And one of Linda loved to create beauty. She had a beautiful home and she would often just single-handedly decorate this whole church for holiday events and just all by herself she'd just come in here and just make the whole room gorgeous. It was like she had such a big energy. This was about the right size room. Her own house was just not big enough. She loved, she loved beauty. And Swami said to her when he visited her in the last you know, weeks of her life, now, Linda, he said, you're going to be very tempted to just stay in the astral world. <laughs> he says, you're going to like it there because it's going to suit you. He said, but you know, you'll need to come back in order to finish your karma. Don't get too attached to the astral world. It was a very sweet, it was a sweet thing to say because he was really telling her that it'll seem more like home to you than this place ever has. Very dear, isn't it? Okay. So... Then you have the whole question of suicide. It seems to me like we talked about suicide in this class not too long ago, but anyway, it's a tough one. So the most important thing you have to realize is it's just a mistake. And it's finally sort of... Swamiji was very... Um, I don't want to use the word casual, because casual would be mis- misleading. But he took suicide just like he took every other karmic thing. It, he, it didn't... He, didn't ex- he wasn't exaggerated in his response to it. He just saw, well, it's the natural consequence of a certain line of thinking. And that line of thinking is erroneous. And if you carry it to the end point, well, then that's what will happen. And he, he didn't become... He, he, of course, it was never anything. It was always a heartbreaking thing to see when it would happen. But it was just something that happened. And you know, it, it's important for us because almost all of us eventually are touched by this, either directly or indirectly, because we just, in this world, you know a lot of things about a lot of people. And, uh, but all you can just encourage, just encourage that soul to look to the light, as simple as that. One of the death and return stories was a woman who tried to kill herself but didn't succeed. And she immediately went into a very dark zone. And she saw that there were a lot of other people there many of whom appeared to have been there for a very long time. And she realized she was in the zone where suicides go. And the nature of that zone was other self, utterly self-absorbed despair. Because that's what happens, that's what pushes you to suicide, is that you become so focused on your internal reality that you simply lose track of everything. You lose track of the consequences of your actions, you lose track of anything that might be positive in your life. You've just narrowed your reality down to such a tiny point that you actually deny life itself, as, as Swami, as Master puts it. Swami also, he, he said, has said many times that the reasons why a person commits suicide um, mitigate, affect the karma. You know, if you're doing it in anger to get back at someone, that's far worse than there was a woman who had been part of our community for a long time, but she was really mentally um, not, not balanced at all and, and had, took a tremendous number of various medications over many years until her mind was so scrambled. 
And then in the end, she did kill herself. But Swami just said, you know, she wasn't really even responsible for what she did. You know, she wasn't really acting from deliberate intention. It was by that point, it, it just the brain was such a mess. So it, it makes a huge difference. Um, but his attitude toward it was always just, well, you know, all karma can be overcome. But this woman, when she went down into that zone and realized suddenly where she was and immediately realized that was not where she wanted to be, and somehow or another, oh, I know what she said, the word Jesus came to her mind. And she wasn't a particularly religious person or anything. I mean, it's such a strange story, but it's a true one. She's in this zone. She sees all these people utterly self-involved. She can tell by the clothes they were wearing. that you know Some of them were wearing clothes from centuries ago. And she, she knew intuitively and telepathically that they'd just been there the whole time because they'd lost everything but this self-absorption. The word Jesus came into her mind. And when the word Jesus came into her mind, she looked up. And right above that, she saw that there were all these angels. And these angels were all trying to get the attention of these people. And as soon as she looked up and saw it, she went for that light. And then she came back into her body and afterwards um, took up a ministry of talking to people about what had happened. But they were, the angels were right there. And, but people had to lift their awareness. A man who was psychic um, told us a story. Of it. it wasn't about suicide, but it was about how wrong thinking can become intensified once you shed the body. Uh, some of you have heard this. It, it, Bill Yabroff, who used to live here, had the ability to see into the astral world, and he could see spirits. And he did a service for all of us. He would go into our apartments. The whole, this whole thing is a little outside of my experience. He would go into our apartments and he would sometimes tell us that there were um, spirits inhabiting our apartments. And then he would communicate with them. I mean, this is a a PhD professor person. He was no flake. He just could do this. And uh, he, he could see them and he could communicate with them because they're just people without bodies. You know, there's nothing special. It's just somebody who's dead, that's all. <laughs> so they're people without bodies, and they were stuck somewhere between the worlds, and he would help them. Why they would be physically somewhere? I mean, I always wondered. I never got to ask him. Was it like the physical death happened on this spot whenever it happened? So in, uh, in, in the apartment that I was living in at the time, there were two areas in the apartment that always had a funny feeling to me. They felt just a little... I, didn't, I, I wouldn't say that they were creepy, but they just had a, some funny feeling. Anyway, he came in, and I don't remember what he said about the second one. I'm pointing upstairs, but the downstairs one, he said, there was an American Indian warrior on his horse, and he was in my kitchen, and, uh, or my second kitchen, because we had two apartments then. He was on his horse, And he had been in one of the last battles against the white people in which his group was wiped out, including him. And uh, especially what had happened is that his daughter had been killed. And his daughter, he'd been unable to save his daughter. I mean, think about it. Think about the trauma of that. You're there. He's a warrior. It's, you know, it's such a horrible story, all these people being killed. But there you are. You're the father of this child. You're overrun by the superior force. You're fighting 
to save your people and your daughter's killed. And he couldn't save her and he couldn't save himself. So he dies. But he dies in this state of, of just horrible anger, despair, failure. And so he, he just goes and he's caught. And this is how Bill described it. He's on his horse and he's just looking down like this. He's just, and he's been there for who knows how long, you know, like this. And then Bill can also see that right above him is his daughter. But she's in light, and she's trying to get his attention. I'm okay, Dad. It's all right. Come with me. And they're both caught right there. And Bill, in whatever way he did it, he got him to look up. And as soon as he looked up, he just went. Now, literally true, I have no reason to doubt Bill. Yeah, and then the energy changed. And, you know, it's either literally true, which I have every, no reason to think it isn't, or it's apocryphal. But either way, isn't it fascinating? Which is why there's a story that Swami tells in the path about him going to visit a certain disciple of Master who was ill in the hospital and was close to the, his death. And the disciple was saying, oh, I've done so many wrong things in my life. And Swami came back and told Master that Master got very sad. Oh, he said, I wish he wasn't thinking like that. Because, see, now he'll go into the astral world thinking, oh, I've done so many wrong things. But he could equally have thought, what a privileged and beautiful life I had. I was the disciple of a great Master. What greater good karma could I have had? What joy this life has been. You know, we, we, we can't afford to let our minds spiral like that. You never know when it's your last breath. And why would you want to? Suicide is the complete step of that, but we're committing suicide all the time. When we're saying, oh, but I'm so unworthy, I'm so bad, I'm so this and so that. And, you know, the angels are right here, but we're determined not to see them. And if anybody tries to say to you, the angels are right there, you say, no, they're not. And then even the masters just throw their hands up. What can they do? Well, on that cheerful note. <laughs> Hallelujah. If, you have any, if we have any questions, we'll take them next week. Okay, so tonight we did two. We did 17 and 18. Okay. <laughs>